Hello and welcome to the UK Personal Finance Show with Phil Anderson, the podcast designed to give you all the financial advice you'll ever need. This is episode 89, where in a moment we look at investing for children. That's today's show topic and it's on the way in just a second. But please bear in mind, if you have a general financial query, you're in the right place because we have an enormous resource of free advice right here and you can access it all simply through delving into our back catalogue of shows because in our programmes to date, we featured loads of stuff, pensions, investing, life insurance, and loads more. You name it, we've done it pretty much. And last week, we looked at responsible investing. Remember, we can drill down and focus on pretty much anything forensically. Find the UK Personal Finance Show with Phil Anderson on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts, and you'll get us there. Like I say, an enormous resource, all available for free. Find our previous shows after listening to this one and have a binge on what you need. While you're there, if you could rate and review us, for instance, you could tell us what we need to address to help you out and follow the show. Then that way, you'll get that episode when we record it next time. I'm John Ellis, and with me as always, the star of our show, it's Phil Anderson. Hi, Phil. Hi, John. How are you today? Good, thank you. Now, I'm going to guess this is probably a subject that you got properly locked down because you've said in these podcasts before your why you do what you do is is for your kids to give them a good life, and you've got a squad of of, of lads at six, isn't it? You've got yeah, six yeah. six boys. Yeah, so I'd imagine investing for children is something you've taken seriously along the years. I, I think it's interesting that you're talking about investing and not just saving. You know, like you know the college fund. That's always the one that's getting dipped into in the movies. So, investing for children. What sort of thing are we looking at here? Where do you get started in this world? Yeah, I mean, it, it, like you say, it, it's something that I'm, I'm big on myself. We're having six kids and I've, I've got one son with, with learning difficulties. Um, Evan's got Down syndrome. So I've always known, even before he was born, I, I kind of thought, right, I'm going to have to have enough money in place so that if anything happens to me, he's going to be well looked after as he gets older. Probably less so for the, the other boys because they're going to be more in a position to kind of look after themselves. But I must admit, I'm, I'm really keen to try and, help my kids out as, as much as I can. I mean, it's not to be at the detriment of my own kind of lifestyle, but I, I've got goals that I, I've kind of set. I mean, right, right from an early age, I always had a figure in mind as to what I wanted to have there for, for Evan, should anything happen to myself. And not only that, not only do I make savings, but I've got life insurance in place. So if anything did happen, there, there's money there as well. But I would say when it comes to investing for, for children, the first steps really are assess your objectives. Um, you need to have an understanding of what you're investing for. So, for example, with, with Evan, I know that I want to have a pot of money there that if anything happens to me, he's going to be cared for, sort of fine for, for the rest of his life. But, I mean, it could be that you might want to pay for your child to be sort of privately educated. According to the Independent Schools Council, the average cost of that is £5,064 per term for day students. 12,000 per term for boarders. So, I mean, if you were wanting to put your, your kids to a, a public school, then there's going to be quite a significant cost for, for doing that. So that might be one reason that somebody wants to, to invest for their, their children. Another one could be university tuition fees. According to the Times, it's over £9,000 per year for most courses. I know in Scotland, we're, we're very fortunate there that you, you're going to have the, the university tuition fees up here, but um, for other parts of the UK, that, that could be quite significant cost. But one cost you, you'll have, regardless of where you are in the UK, is living costs. And again, according to the Times, if someone's at university, they, they reckon the average 
for a 39-week rental contract, they're saying that you've got living costs of just under £5,000 there. So again, it might be that somebody wants to, to help their, their kids out. So there's a number of different reasons. Another one could be maybe you want to, to help your child get married one day. I know like in the past, it was maybe more traditional if you had daughters mm. to pay for their wedding. That's one thing I'm Possibly lucky when we're having six boys. But Lucked out of that one, Phil. I know. But again, according to the, the Money Advice Service, the, the average cost of a wedding now is just over 27 grand. So mm-hmm. if you are maybe more traditional and say, right, I've got a daughter and I want to pay for our wedding, that, that's, I mean, that's the average cost now. So, I mean, if you've got a daughter that's two and she gets married in 25 years' time, who knows what the cost that will be by, by that time. So th- there's numerous things. Other ones that could be, you maybe want to help your, your children onto the property ladder. Again, depending on what area you're buying in, according to Halifax, the, the average first-time deposit is now fifty-eight, almost 59000 or around 23% of the house purchase price. I mean, you'll find different areas in the UK. I know, like in Aberdeen, the average house price is neither 200000 whereas we've got an office in Weatherby in Yorkshire, and the average price there is about 480000 So depending on where about you're buying, that, that's got a big, big impact on that. But if you're looking to help your children with, with these types of expenses, there's many different investment options to, to consider. And what I would say is it revolves around two kind of major factors. One is like the, the longer the time scale you've got, the more scope there is for your investments to grow. And what I would also say is sound professional advice will help people to achieve a balanced portfolio and that also align to their kind of risk and also avoid any kind of pitfalls. But your plan also includes things like who'll hold the investment, choosing the the most suitable investment and and the right choice of product. And again, that's where taking professional advice can help with all of that things. Okay, but just as a generalised thing here, Phil, it sounds pretty much to me um, what you said there that well, one, there's a lot of expense that you could potentially be be yeah. shelling out for. I mean, just taking the deposit for the house alone, I started to get a little bit shaky. <laughs> um, but you know, you've got you've got something like that, for instance, and you said, you know, you'll you'll have more opportunities over a longer period. It's better for you if you're saving over a longer period in terms of the investments that you're making. So I'm guessing that it's not a bad thing, and probably a lot of people do this. It's not a bad thing to consider you know, at birth, right? Let's yeah. set let's set something up for this child. Let's set something up for the next child and so on and so yeah. forth. So what sort of investment plans should people be looking at? I, I've actually seen some people start investments before they've even like planned it to have kids. They, they've yeah. thought, right, one day I want to have children. So they've started even prior to birth. But I guess the earlier someone invests, the longer their money's got to, to kind of grow. But the, the sort of things that, that we'll kind of touch on today, things like junior ISAs, child trust funds, pensions, like it's possible to invest in a personal pension for your, oh, your child, premium bonds, trusts, there, there are quite a number of different things that we'll go over and cover in today's episode. I'm just thinking, you know, there's a, there's a lot of grandpas out there that I know that when when the son or daughter was born, they, they send them up for the golf club immediately so that they would be a member by the time, you yeah. know, if there's a wait list to be a member by the time that they would want to hold a golf club. It's the same sort of thing, but this is more important. Let's get yeah. investing for our kids. Here's something which always has me in two minds whenever I've considered something like this, Phil. Do you make the investment in their name or your own? Now, I'm guessing if it's in their name, the thing that you're frightened of is when they come of age, whatever that is, 
is, you know, 16, 18, whatever, that they then go just sort of blue it in a weekend to Vegas because they're not responsible enough. But you save it in your own name and presumably there may be some tax implications. So what, what do you go for? Yeah, that's it. I mean, it, it's normal practice for a parent to retain ownership of the child's investment in some in some capacity until they're they're older. And as a, a general rule, children under 18 or and in Scotland at 16, they, they generally can't invest in their own name because they don't have the legal powers to, to either do that or make a valid contract with a provider or manager on an ongoing basis. So that's why it's important for the, the parents to, to be involved. I'd say that the simplest and most flexible kind of way to get started is simply invest money in your own name, knowing that that sum is earmarked for your children. So that's what a lot of people will do. And like you say, that there can be disadvantages with that. What you'll find is that you have to watch in case you have to pay maybe like income tax or capital gains tax on an investment. And again, if it's held in your name, you may have an inheritance tax liability. So there are disadvantages there. And that, that's why it's a good idea to, to take professional advice because a professional advisor can, can help you with, with all of that sort of things. Another option would be to place the funds in a designated account or trust on their behalf. So that, that's something that's that's quite important and, and worth considering. And that helps kind of minimise your, your tax liability. So setting something up for the kids, but in trust, can can have sort of a lot of advantages there. Okay, there's, there's yeah, there's a, sorry, there's a lot of things to cover here, aren't there? I mean, a lot of options you can actually sink your money into. Yeah, that's um, it. How do you choose the most suitable one for your, your child? Yeah, I mean, it, it's looking at things like when you want them to have access to the money. So a lot of people will say, right, I'll put it in trust for them up until age 18. A lot will often say, look, I want to make it till, say, 25, because I, I want don't want them to be... I know I was like at 18. I think it was the, the only thing I was interested in was living for the weekend at, at that kind of age. And, <laughs> but other, other parents might think, right, I'm happy for them to use that money for car purchase, deposit on a house. If it's in a trust, depending on how that's set up, it, it, it might be that you you kind of hold more of the, not the purse strings, but you can determine when they actually get access to, to that money. So it, it's all set out in what's called a trust deed. The thing with some of them, in terms of accessing the funds, Phil, trusts from memory, and I, you know we've done 89 shows, but I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to delve back here. Trusts are they are they more difficult to access funds or or can it be quite easy? Yeah, you, you have different types of trust. The one that I often sort of used to recommend is what's called a, a bear trust, and then that type of trust, the investment's taxed as if it belongs to the the child. So that, that was something I was going to touch on just a, a wee bit later on as well. That was going to be one of my. I've got a few tips that I was oh, okay. going to share. So I'll probably cover that off as we, we go through the the show later on. Okay, well, let, let's let's um, have a look at some of the things that we yeah. dive into then. You mentioned, and, and this is one that I always like, I always think this sounds like a safe kind of way of beginner investing for anybody, really. What are the pros and cons of ICES? And when we're talking about kids, it'll be junior ICES, won't it? Yeah, that's it. I mean, for, for ICES, I mean, what, what you'll find there is that any child under the age of 18 and who lives in the UK, they can have a junior ISA or JISA, it's often sort of called like like the adults ISAs there, there's two types of junior ISA you've got the the cash one which is hit just like money that's held in a bank or building society account and you've also got the, the stocks and shares one which is more volatile and, and can go up or down but when you're looking at investing if you've got money the cash ISA is more for like savings 
So if, if you've got money and you want to put it in, take it out, say that's more like a, a savings type account. Whereas the stocks and shares ISA is more viewed as like longer term investments. And at, at the moment, in the current tax year, you, you can pay up to £9,000 in a junior ISA. And you can split that. It can be split some in cash, some in the stocks and shares. You, you've got an allowance of £9,000 in the, the current tax year. I guess one of the pros is that any income and gains from the junior ISA, they're free of UK tax and not subject to like the parents paying tax on it. Okay. I suppose the, the downside is that the child can get control of that money at 16, but usually they can't withdraw anything until age 18. That's kind of some of the, the kind of pros and cons. Junior ISAs, they, they replaced what was called child trust funds. I mentioned that just briefly. My two oldest sons have got child trust funds. My oldest son's 17, so he'll get his one out fairly soon because they can access that on their, their 18th birthday. Child trust funds, they're no longer available. They were replaced by the junior ISAs, but you can still pay up to £9,000 per year into an existing child trust fund if you've got the option of that as well. Just as you were speaking there about um, the sort of junior ISAs and the child trust funds, there was some, There was a memory came sort of to the front of my mind there, which was something along the lines of, didn't the government at some stage provide for all kids like a start-up ISA or something, yeah, that- something of that nature? That's right. When Gordon Brown, I think, was a chancellor at the time. So Rowan, my oldest son, is 17. Now, when he was born, I think he got, I think it was £250. Something like that, yeah. And then with his one, I think they added, he he got a second payment at a certain age, but they they did away with that. Late in, my my next son, he is 13. He's got a child trust fund. I think they now call it a junior ISA. I think they changed it. Mm. But with his one, paid into both of them for a little while, but it just shows Leighton was quite lucky because the stock market must have been down around about the time he was born because his one is worth not a lot less than what Rowan's one is and his had been in a bit <laughs> longer. So sometimes you need a bit of luck just as to when yeah. the money goes in as well. But one good thing, I mean, if you're paying in regularly to, for example, a junior ISA, you've got, it's called pound cost averaging. So you're buying in, if you put a lump sum in an investment, you're buying in on a one particular day. Whereas with, with a monthly investment, you're buying in at different points. So sometimes markets might be up, sometimes they might be down. And that volatility is actually a good thing if you're paying in on a, a monthly basis as well. Yeah, so it comes off your account, say, like a direct debit, and, and you're none of the wiser, but it's being invested yeah. for the months over the period. Just something that crossed my mind there when we were talking about the two different types of ISAs, and you said that, that, that you know, there's the stocks and shares one, which is probably going to give you a a better return, maybe over a longer period. And there's the savings one, which is just like having your money in a bank. I would have assumed in the past, the selling point for that, you know, if it's just like having your money in a bank, the selling point for it would have been that it would have had a higher rate of interest than a bank. But I'm just wondering where things are sitting in this sort of brave new world where we're being told that the rate of inflation is sort of hovering around 10%. I know, that's it. Are, are ISAs any more value for money now just on a, on a purely saving basis? I, I like the, the stocks and shares ISAs. The, the cash ISAs, I mean, like if, if you, you put your allowance, the £9,000 into that, and let's just say you're getting an interest rate at 2%, that's £180 interest over the, the year. Now, you pay... The, the way it works, you don't pay tax on so much of the first savings interest that you've got anyway, but even if you were paying 20% tax on that, it saved you like £36 in tax over the, the year. So I don't know, like the interest rates are really low. 
what you'll find is that, I mean, if inflation, they're speaking about it being sort of like nine, ten percent just now. Yeah. And if you're only getting two or three percent in real terms, you're actually losing money. Mm. So if you're investing for the longer term, you are better going into things like maybe like stock market investments or looking at other alternatives. And one thing I was going to say, it's more like when you're looking at like the different options, when you're trying to choose the most suitable investment for your child, what you want to do, it needs to be aligned with the level of risk that you're willing to take. So if someone, I mean, I, I would argue not no risk. I mean, a low risk investor might say, oh, well, I just want my money held in the bank. But then you've got inflation risk, like, like you mentioned there. So you, you've got to kind of take that into account. That's where a good financial advisor will sit down with you and say, right, what's your objectives? How much risks are you willing to take? If you're investing for a child that's really young and you don't need that money for, say, 20 years, you can probably afford for things to be a bit more up and down. Mm. But as if your child was 16 and you thought, right, I'm going to be paying for university in two or three years' time, you might not want to take so much risks if, if that was the case. But like I say, that's that's where a good advisor, they, they'll work with you towards like specific goals or, or goals they, they'll understand that or ensure that you understand what you need to do to get to that as well. So they'll look at things like the risk versus reward, all, all that sort of thing. But they're, they're really well placed to help you with that. The other thing that a professional advisor can do as well, they, they can also help you find the most suitable products. So they, yeah. they'll find the best kind of wrappers, they often call it. So is it best putting money in an ISA, keeping it in your name, their name? So they'll look at all of that, look at your tax situation. So there's quite a lot of ins and outs to, to look at when you are investing for the children. I know when we're thinking about these types of things, investing for children, we're considering maybe education, you know, whether that's private school or university, first cars, first house deposits, weddings maybe, basically all the first, and in the case of weddings also hopefully the last. And, and in doing that, we don't consider later life. It's all geared to helping them onto that first rung of the ladder in so many ways. But you mentioned pensions earlier, and I'm wondering, should we also consider putting money into a pension for them so that they're looked after a bit in later life as well? That's it. I know for a lot of people, they often think their own pensions are whirled away, never mind that of their, their children. So it is good to, to consider it. I, I've had people do it before because, again, you've got tax relief on, on pension contributions, which is one of the, the good things there. But one of the things, if you're looking to secure your child's sort of financial future in the long term, and if you can afford to do it, you can certainly consider opening something like a, a junior self-invested personal pension. So I, that, that's like a, a SIP, or a, like a junior SIP. With those, you get 20% tax relief on the premiums going in, and you can pay up to a maximum of £3,600 a year into that. So if you pay in 2880 you get tax relief, 20% tax relief added, which takes it up to 3600 So that's kind of giving you like £720 free money added in the year. And I was actually speaking to one of the advisors in, in my firm earlier today, and he was saying that he was speaking to someone recently. And in fact, it was during one of his exams, he was telling me he had to do, he had to write an article on how your child can become like a, a sort of pension millionaire. <laughs> but what he was saying is, if you invest, as soon as your child's born, if you invested the maximum, that 3,600 each year, I think it was from like zero to, to 18, you, you get the tax relief on it. And if it grew, I think he said it was something like 5% a year. 
by the time they get to 18, you could just leave it. it I think by the time they got to their early 60s, their pension pot was worth like a million quid, is, is what he was saying. <laughs> now, in, in so many, in 60 odd years, a million pounds is negative to be worth what it mm-hmm. is today. But and the, the point he was making to me was, it's how long you're invested for as opposed to how much you're you're kind of putting in. So again, that's just an example of the earlier someone starts saving whatever it's for, then then the better, the longer their money's got to grow, your interest compounds over time. Yeah, it's it's still not a bad start though, is it? A million, even if it is 60 years from now. Now, I know you've always been um, quite fond of premium bonds as well. Can kids have those? Yeah, I mean, that, that's one thing. Premium bonds can be taken out for any child like or on behalf of any child under the age of 16, you can purchase between £25 and £50,000 worth of premium bonds, if that was the case. The one thing I would say, the price funds dropped a fair bit over the, the year, so it's not quite so good. But you've always got, for what happens there, we, we did a whole show on premium bonds yeah. once, but the way it works, instead of earning interest on your money, you're entered into prize draws and you've got the chance of winning a tax-free sum anywhere between £25 and a million pounds. So if your child wins a prize, the money's either paid to the, the nominated parent or guardian's bank account on the child's behalf, or it can be reinvested into more premium bonds. But like I say, the, the prize pot has definitely dipped a fair bit over the years on, on the premium bonds. Yeah, any any other things that we should maybe take a look at when we're, uh, when we're considering investing for children, Phil? Yeah, I mean, we we mentioned earlier, you can hold investments and trust on a child's behalf. And unless the trustee states otherwise, trustees can generally invest in any assets that they choose. So you've got a lot of choice kind of there. There's rules that you've got to adhere to. Trustees Act 2000, I think it was. If you're investing for a child in a trust, you've got to ensure that any investments made are suitable, as well as got to be sufficiently diversified. You've also got a duty to consider proper advice from somebody who they believe reasonably qualified and competent in such matters. So again, the likes of a, a financial advisor would be able to, to help you there. And the investment shouldn't interfere with the trustee's statutory duty of care under the Act. There's many different types of trusts and the, the tax treatment varies greatly. So again, that's why it's good to, to get professional advice in those cases. Mm. And what about investing for children when it comes to being sort of tax efficient for them, making sure the maximum goes to your kids and not HMRC? Yeah, so I've got, got a few kind of tips for, for people okay. here. So I've got a few kind of top tips for, for maximum tax efficiency. The, the first one that I would say is take full advantage of the, the tax-free allowances if you can. As we've seen, you've got like the, the junior ISAs, junior SIPs, that's the, the self-invested personal pension, so each year you've got an allowance that you can pay money into them. So again, you, you might be able to get tax relief on, on pension contributions or money going into ISAs is, is certainly worth considering as well. So you want to try and use the allowances where you can and, and maximise those. I mentioned earlier about holding investments in a bear trust. And again, that, that's often a, a sort of good tip for, for people because with that type of trust, it taxes the investment as if they're belonged belongs to the child as opposed to the the adult. The only thing you've got to be aware of is that once you name the child as a beneficiary, it can't be reversed. So they've got an absolute right to both the trust's income and capital once they're old enough to take ownership. That's one thing to kind of watch out there. And like like adults, children's got a a personal tax-free allowance. 
So you're allowed to make £12,570 in the current tax year. And in addition to that, you, you've got the, the savers starters rate of up to £5,000 and a personal savings allowance of £1,000. So altogether, children can earn up to £18,570 a year <laughs> tax-free. So, so that's going to cover a, a fair bit for, for them. Mm. And likewise, children have also got a, a capital gains tax allowance. So they can make, again, a £12,300 per year before they have to pay tax on any investment profits as well. So a lot of, of things there. Another big tax tip is to take advantage of the double ISA loophole, is what I call it. So as your child gets older, they, they'll become eligible for a normal ISA at the same time when they've still got their junior ISA. So if your child's age 16 and 17, they can open a cash ISA. They, they can't open a stocks and shares one until they're 18. But that then gives them an allowance at 16 and 17, a tax-free allowance of £20,000 annually. Okay, because they're, they're treated as adults at that point. Yeah, so so at that stage, they can put £9,000 into a junior ISA and £20,000 into a cash ISA at age mm. 16. So for parents that were looking to put money away for the kids, if, if you've got that money, again, for over that two years when they're 16 and 17, you can deposit up to £29,000 mm. per year tax-free across the two accounts. So that's a, a wee bit of a kind of loophole sort of there. Other things when you're investing for children, gifts of money, like if you're benefiting, you can benefit from what's called lifetime gifts. So if you've got an inheritance tax liability, gifts of money don't incur inheritance tax. So if you gift that money away, as long as you live for seven years after gifting it, that is out with your estate. So again, you've got sort of tax things there, or inheritance tax things there. Lifetime gifting, it's a good option for maybe grandparents, for example, if they want to contribute financially to their grandchild's future, while still at the same time reducing the value of their own estate for inheritance tax purposes. So lifetime gifts is, is another area that a financial advisor can, can help someone with. And like I say, with, with any kind of form of financial planning, the earlier you begin for your child's future, the, the better. So that, that's definitely a, a kind of top tip. And the, the final tip that I would say is, Go and speak to an independent financial advisor. They can develop a, a robust investment plan for you. They'll also review things regularly, make sure your portfolio is working as hard as it, it could be. They'll also look at changes in your circumstances. So I would definitely say taking financial advice is good. And, and as I mentioned earlier, professional financial advisor will also look at like your tolerance to risk. They'll look at it and say, right, how long is that money away? How much risk are you willing to take? Are you... Cautious investor, speculative, balanced. There's a lot of different kind of categories, but they, they'll look at what's going to be most suitable for your circumstances as well. Okay, and I know that um, this show is investing for children, but it seems like we've got children mentioned here. We'll talk about investing in them as opposed to yeah. for them. The one thing that I know that you back up, and we've done a show on this previously as well, I know that you back up as we're sort of setting foundations and making savings and, and investing for our kids investing in them at the same time from a young age and teaching them about money and teaching them about saving and all the things that they can do in that yeah. regard is so essential, isn't it? It is. I think one thing that's disappointing is I'd like to see kids get more financial education in schools. Yeah. So I guess it, a lot of that falls to the parents to kind of educate the kids financially. I mean, I, I've got in, in our house, I've got like toy money, 
So my youngest son is four. So I'll, I'll often get the the toy. He he likes real money. That's <laughs> uh, one thing with, with him, like his mum. But um, he'll often sit, try and get him counting with the coins, just getting him used to the different yeah. shapes of the coins. I'll often go to the shops where, where I've got two eight-year-old boys. And when I take them to the shops, I'll get them to look at the prices of things and try and get them doing just basic sums. It's like, right, if that costs 80 pence and I give you a pound, how much change would you get? Just little things like that. So it's just trying to... <laughs> I'd get 20, Dad, but you wouldn't get any of it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, here we go, fellas. We enter into the part of the show where, where you share your own life story. What have you got regarding this one on investing for children? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, we've got... I've got the six boys, the two oldest ones. They've got the, the child trust funds. At the time, I'd, I'd never paid a lot into them. And the reason for that was that I knew they would have access at age 18. My, my preference is to have it that they would get it a wee bit older. I mean, I think Rowan, my oldest son, he's 17. He wants to be a police officer. I think he's quite sensible now. But a couple of years ago, I'd have been thinking, mm, I'd, I'd probably trust him with that money now. Where, whereas a couple of years ago, I was thinking, oh, then I really want him getting it at 18. I mean, if, if he wanted that money to buy, if he said to my dad, I want to buy a car or mm. I want to put down a deposit in a house, then I'd be like, yeah, go for it. But it is, that, that's the downside with some of these things is that if the child's got access to it at 18, I certainly yeah. know what I would have been looking to do when I was that age. Yeah, either that or, you know, I want to buy several thousand V-Bucks for Fortnite or something like oh, that. Oh, that's definitely, <laughs> I know. Yep. <laughs> okay, but we'll do this bit as well. You, you find inspiration through various people you admire and you do love a quote. What have you got on the subject of today's show on investing for children? This one's a wee bit close to what you were saying just a few moments ago. It's a quote from someone called Kevin Heath. The best gift and investment you can give your child is your time. Yeah, I agree. Is it, I mean, it's it's not always about money. Quite often, I, I, I take my kids to, to a couple of different youth clubs and that hour or two that I spend with them there, I see them having great fun and mm. money kind of buy that. So, no, I mean, exactly. they, I know, that's it. Exactly. You know, in, in the summer holidays, and I know this sounds twee and quaint and all the rest, in the summer holidays, Phil, um, of all the things that I do, the thing that makes my little girl happiest is if we make a picnic and we go for a walk. Yeah. And, and that's and we just hang out. That is that is literally it. You yeah. go to all sorts of, you know, fairs or whatever, but just actually spending time and having a chat and, you know, enjoying each other's company yeah. is, is the best you can do. Now, um, Phil is really keen on trying to help you with your financial queries. If you want to email a question to us, please do. And as always, we can ask them anonymously if you'd prefer us to. Let's get on to this week's contact details in just a moment. Give it to you after these. Hi, Phil. I'm considering investing in critical illness cover. And I know you did a show on it recently, but what I'm finding difficult to compare from the various options and offer is typically how long a policy takes to pay out on the cover. None of them seem to want to fully commit in black and white to an easily sourced answer for comparison's sake. Is that deliberate or am I looking in the wrong place? Yeah, the, the average time for a payout, it can vary quite a bit. I mean, I, I've seen some folk get paid out and I mean, the average with some companies is maybe 30 days, but as others, it could be up to kind of eight weeks. So one, one thing the insurer should be able to, to give you is an estimated time scale. If, if someone's making a claim, they, they'll try and give you a, an estimate as to how long it'll take. If, if they get everything that they need and the claim is accepted, then payouts should really be just within a matter of days. What you will find, though, is if the insurer maybe wants to ask your GP or, or let's say you've had to see 
some sort of consultant or specialist. If that was the case, they might write to them for, for more information. So if it's a bit more complicated, if it's more complex kind of claim, then it will take a bit longer to process. But you, you would hope that that should be paid out within a maximum of kind of 12 weeks, I would say. But it can vary a lot from, from company to company. Okay. Uh, and this one is from Yvonne in Darlington, who says, is there anything which says I can't invest my personal incapacity benefit into something which may make more money to assist with paying for my care? I think personal incapacity benefit, I think that's being replaced with what's called employment and support allowance or ESA. It's mm. often referred to. And I mean, that, that's there to help people with the cost of living if they're unable to work. So yeah. try to help you with your, your living costs. And th- there isn't really anything to stop you investing any spare monies that you have. But one thing I would say to watch out for is that with some benefits, if you've got savings, that can impact on, on certain benefits. You just need to kind of be careful there. Maybe even seeking advice from like citizens advice would, would be a good place to, to maybe start there. They, they know a lot more about the ins and outs of the different types of benefits. And it may be that you maybe have something else, maybe that you, you don't have anything else, but you need to maybe just watch for, for that if you were saving into anything. Yes, it's when things are, is it means tested? Is that what we're talking about? It's, right, yeah. Yeah, so it's it's that sort of situation. And, and again, yeah, citizens' advice, I would imagine, would be, as you say, the best place to go. Would you say as well, before you get in touch with the question, you might want to take a look at our back catalogue because we've covered a lot of topics but now, and we may well have touched on whatever it is that you're interested in. I'm John Mellis. Thank you for joining us for the UK Personal Finance Show with Phil Anderson. If you feel you need a helping hand with anything we've been discussing or anything else of a monetary matter, find Phil for finance. Search Phil Anderson Financial Services online or join the Facebook group for the show. Search Personal Finance Community. That's Personal Finance Community on Facebook. Phil's on Twitter and LinkedIn as well. Or why not email Phil a question he can answer on a future show? His address is phil at philandersonfinancial.co.uk. That's phil at philandersonfinancial.co.uk. Send him your question. And like I say, Phil could be answering it in an upcoming podcast. Please be assured we will not use your real name if that's what you prefer. Remember, if you found this useful, please rate and recommend us. Please follow us on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. That way you'll get us every week with the info you want when you need it. You'll get all the links you need on Phil's social media. Good luck with your money. Phil's doing his best to help make that cash go further. We'll see you next time. And thanks for listening. 